Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Episode seven, the importance of being virgin. And welcome everybody to the podcast in which we have conversations around the culture of the music fanzine, focusing on what some consider its heyday during the punk and post-punk years. Although I should allow that my opinion there may be in part due to the fact that I published a fanzine back in those days. And if you haven't figured or didn't know already, that fanzine was called Jamming, my name is Tony, and we have just published a book entitled The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977 to 86. It's out now, available worldwide, and I'll give you more info about the book at the other end of this show. But in short, we figured it might be neat to host a podcast to coincide with the book's publication, the idea being to put together for each episode a thematic group of people connected to the culture of fanzines or to jamming in particular, hopefully not all of whom have met before, and also hopefully gather some useful recollections about that golden era of the do-it-yourself culture that was propagated and propelled by the revolution which it was of punk rock. And at a time in our lives when many of us have moved to different places and a time on the planet where getting together, let alone long-distance travel, is fraught with problems, and you know what I'm talking about here, it's genuinely been a delight for me to reconnect with people I knew from back in the days of publishing Jamming. And today's guests are no exception. They are Jim, J.G. Thurwell, Wendy May and Brian O'Neill, and they are all people I originally met when they worked the counters at various London Virgin record shops. Now, when we look back on what I did just call a golden era, then in terms of record shops, our attention is naturally drawn to the truly independent ones. Seminal places like Rough Trade and Small Wonder in London, Probe in Liverpool and Red Rhino in York, all of which also started labels. Virgin had a similar foundation in the earlier 1970s and those shops were able to expand rapidly onto British high streets when Virgin Records' first LP, Tubular Bells, sold by the Gazillion. But these shops did not sacrifice themselves to the mainstream. Rather, they served a vital role as an important, accessible middle ground between the aforementioned impossibly invaluable one-off localised independent shops and the real high street chains like WH Smith's and Woolworth's, which stocked almost nothing but chart records. The record buyers at the various Virgin shops, and Wendy, Jim and Brian are all prime examples and at different locations, were given enormous degrees of autonomy in terms of what they could buy in to sell back out. And for the most part, that very much included purchasing fanzines, as I discovered when I brought jamming in off the street. 
Not that I needed to look back through my meticulously kept notebooks of those early sales to affirm as much, but jamming would have been a very different story without access to the wider public, thanks to the support of these virgin buyers and their managers. Many of these staff, and again the three guests today are good examples of it, went on to further careers in some form of music, often on the performing side, and all of them recollect encounters with famous customers. Over the course of this show, you'll hear references to Elvis Costello, David Coverdale, Boy George, Paul Simon and Steve-O, and many more. I'm going to jump right into it. My apologies up front to J.G. Thurwell, who I think I undersold when asking him to introduce himself. We should all be so creative as he is. But much respect to all three who are still actively involved in music, as you'll hear for yourself on this episode, The Importance of Being Virgin. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? I'm Wendy May and I work for Virgin Records Shops from 1977 until 1986. Wow, that's 10 full years. And where are you speaking to us from, Wendy, right now? Uh, Hastings in East Sussex on the south coast of the UK. Know it very, very well. All right, thank you. Who wants to go next? I'm Brian, Brian O'Neill. I started work with Virgin at Marble Arch. Uh, in 77, I think. And then I moved to the megastore. Uh, I'd Neil fated following Wendy into Portsmouth. Uh, yeah, so, and then I ended up at Rough Trade and doing this and that and um, kind of back in it now a bit. I'm very pleased to be here, Tony. It's great, great to see you. Great, always great to see Wendy and good to meet Jim. Which leaves? I'm Jim Thurlwell. Um, I worked at the Virgin Oxford Walk store from 1979 till I think about 81 or 82 and then I worked at the uh, warehouse in Acton uh, the Virgin Warehouse which was the central um, the central supplier for independent seven inches 12 inches albums uh, cutouts things like that and I worked there until the middle of 82. Right. So you've all got a lot of experience in those shops. And I'm just going to big each of you up right now. Um, Jim, you are known as a musician and uh, by a multitude of names, but most commonly by Fetus. Is that correct? And is that fair to say? Is that yeah. <laughs> various forms of Fetus? Are you fine with me saying people will know you as Fetus, Steroid Maximus, Manorexia, Zordox, Wise Blood, those are my main things. I'm also a composer and I write music for Archer, Venture Brothers, and various um, you know, other ensembles. Yeah, one very, very, very active musician. I'm thrilled to have you on board. Wendy, um, I know because I followed you uh, after jamming stopped publication. I followed you for many years in your club as a DJ, the Locomotion. Um, I don't mind jumping to the present day ever so briefly. I gather from your email and for what else I see that you keep the Locomotion going, correct? Yeah, I'm still DJing regularly. Yeah, yeah. But I was in the Boot Hill Foot Tappers from 83 to 80 five as well so i think we we knew each other through that phase as well we most certainly did because the boot hill foot tappers were made an appearance in jamming they were featured in the color spread in jamming and uh brian uh you were just mentioning you're staying involved um on the label side is that correct primarily yeah Damien and o'neill from the undertones and i've got a little label called dimple discs which is uh 
fun thing that we do, um, named after Damien's Dimples, uh, did his solo LP, and just generally having a sort of a, a nice time with it, or at least trying to in this vinyl crisis time, but great fun. Yeah, no, and you're putting out good music because I know a couple of the acts, not just Damien. Uh, Jim, you didn't get to say where um, where you're calling in from, by the way. Um, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Right. And you were um, originally, uh, you hail from Australia, correct? Yeah, I was born in Melbourne and I uh, moved to London in 1978 and moved to New York in 1983. Right. Did you move to... Did you move to London partly or largely because of what was going on musically and what was not yeah. going on musically in Australia? Absolutely. Yeah. I moved, I was swept up by, I mean, I guess the catalyst was punk rock and um, the, you know, I was a music obsessive already. And um, when punk rock came along, it, it showed me that you know, the making of music was democratized and that anyone could pick up an instrument and do it. And I was excited by that energy and, and I moved to London, which was sort of, for me, it seemed to be ground zero at that point. And fortunately, I arrived at the explosion, you know, the, more of the post-punk explosion of independent record labels and, and stuff like that. And there was just so much going on. It was just a really great time to be there. Fantastic. Now, all three of you obviously worked at the Virgin Shops, and that was the connection that I had. And all three of you brought fanzines from me. I've got to say, I'm particularly thrilled that all three of you on this call, because you all wrote something for the book. And uh, I didn't get to include two of it uh, from Brian and Wendy. Unfortunately, your, the lovely things that you wrote just didn't, didn't quite quite make it into the book. So I'm all the more flattered that you are happy to join in today, which speaks volumes um, well for yourselves and, uh, and maybe goodwill sort of generated over the years. Can I, can I just ask you, you, you seem to have memories of this little kid coming in with his fanzine. So I'd, I'd like to ask you to, to share them. Um, Brian, why don't, why don't you go first? Um, I know what you wrote for the book and it was very short and sweet. Um, All right. I don't actually remember what I wrote for the book, but I do have very, very distinct memories of you. Uh, this uh, very, what seemed very self-confident. Uh, I think you used to come in your school uniform sometimes, and uh, which was not like the other fanzine writers at all. And uh, he used to come in with the uh, Mimeo type stuff stapled together. Here was this colour magazine being brought in by this very serious but. Uh, very poised. I was thinking, God, I wish I had that self-confidence, you know. Um, but, yeah, very distinct memories, very happy days um, in that shop, looking over uh, Hyde Park and everyone coming in and it being just a very exciting time for music and, and in a chart return shop. And, yeah, just really always great to see you coming in with it. Uh, and great to be in touch again. So pleased that this has gone so well for you because it was a, a major memory for me. Oh, that's very, very uh, flattering. Very nice of you to say so. I've got to say, if it was in colour at the time, it had probably progressed uh, a fair amount because it certainly didn't start out in colour, that's for sure. Uh, uh, Jim, um, you want to just kind of recap how how you remember jamming and, and myself from back in the day? Yeah, um, well, I... I started working at the shop in 79 and I had been working like doing temp work and stumbled onto the, you know, I helped wanted sign in the window of the shop and uh, which was really fortunate. And I did, I was like 19 years old and, um, and the shop was, a, had a, more of a 
dance music orientation when I moved there and I started working at the singles counter and we sort of, you know, I mean, I was more interested in independent music and the imports and things like that. And that shifted the vibe of the store somewhat. Um, and yeah, I remember you coming in with the fanzines because we used to chat, I, you know, quite a lot um, when you bring them in. And so, you know, and I remember, you know, talking about the minutia of music and um, and being, you know, both being music nerds. It was, you know, it was, I was always happy to talk about music. We used to um, start quite a few fanzines and we'd keep them. We had, uh, you know, the plastic wraps that you keep albums in, we had them taped to the front of the singles counter and the fanzines would go in there. And so some of them would get really raggedy, but people could browse them and then we'd keep stocks. And and we did well with that, with jamming. Um, and I think I, I used to sometimes reorder um, copies, but I don't remember how many we would take, but I think I seem to think we maybe took 20 or something. Um, and we stocked, um, you know, various other fanzines and um, yeah, some of them were pretty plucky, sort of stapled together eight page things. But, you know, I'd always try and be inclusive and, and take some of, of everything. You know. Well, that that's really appreciated, not just from me, but I'm sure all the fanzine editors at the time. You're saying you're not sure how many uh, you would have taken. I, I don't know if you've seen in the finished book. I was uh, I think fastidious is one word. Um, anal might be another, but I kept this sort of like these notebooks that I st- <laughs> followed me. That's that's from 1978. And it's 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 really interesting. The first shop I went to was Rough Trade and I dropped off 10 there and they bought them. But then I went straight to a virgin shop to Virgin Marble Arch. And somehow they took 11. I got no idea why it's 11, but it says 11. And over the course of the um, the next few days, I managed to get uh, 15 into the Virgin Warehouse and 10 more at Virgin Marble Arch, which suggests that they must have sold them, which must have, would have been amazing for me. But the thing I, I wanted to get to, people might listen to this and go, well, I, I, yeah, I can imagine Rough Trade must have been a really exciting place to work out. And how comes you've, you've connected with people who worked at the Virgin Shops? But for me, the Virgin Shops were absolutely vital. I kind of knew that the Rough Trades of this world would take my fanzine because they took every fanzine unless they you know, thought it was uh, politically incorrect. But getting into a virgin shop got you into, you just said, Brian, you were a chart shop. It got you into the mainstream. And I couldn't do that at other mainstream shops very easily. So I want to go from the premise that you must have all been given quite a lot of freedom in those shops to be able to interact with people who came in off the streets. And I'd like you to talk about that a little, because I think to be honest, the Virgin Shops are a little bit of a missing link in terms of how some of this punk new wave stuff really, really was able to make it into the mainstream, into the you know, I, from the late seventies into the eighties. Yeah, I would say definitely in that um, late seventies, it changed a bit in sort of eighty two. I'd say it started getting a lot more corporate, and you know they started bringing in t-shirts that we had to wear and things like that. Before that, it really was. I mean, when I first worked at Virgin in Swansea in 1977, I walked in and there were um, fly agaric mushrooms made out of papamache with headphones hanging down with bean bags on the floor. And it was all brown and dark. Um, and, you know, there were people just like lying on bean bags, listening to music on the headphones. It was so different within a couple of years when the punk thing really took off and it all became bright orange and 
um, much more sort of corporate in the early 80s. But those sort of late 70s days, we really did have a free reign. We could order, I mean, I remember ordering the first undertone single, you know, um, ordering sort of 50 copies and getting three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which you know of course the staff would lap up get us buy all the first singles that we could get on the punk in the punk world but anyway um no we d really did have a free reign you know yeah. especially in wales because we didn't have the the area managers coming down that often well was the experience different in london for you brian and, and jim at that mm, point no it was very much looking back I mean, it was all kind of like a golden era really because um say with the fan scenes you know we just there was no uh, directives about what you should stock. Uh, all the shops, I think, were pretty much uh, under the control of the buyers. Um, yeah, so it was quite a thrill uh, having these people bring in the fanzines and being able to... I mean, I think I bought a lot of yours, actually, over the time. And, um, and I was a singles buyer in Marble Arch, and I could do what I liked, basically. You know, when... Um, Generation X put out a single in four different sleeves and colours. I think I bought a thousand of it, which is quite astounding if you think these days, you know. And I sold them, and it was like uh, you could do that sort of thing. And the LP buyers certainly tended to, uh, they, they sort of tended their uh, A to Z lovingly, uh, mm. like it was they were gardening or something, and they could, <laughs> most of them would speak in catalogue numbers. I think John Webster used to send his, you know, SHVL894 or something, which was Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Um, so it was, um, it was a little oasis of geeks in many ways. Um, yeah, it was very... Very, and the, it was the same when I first went to the megastore. I was the reggae buyer and I was allowed to go. I couldn't believe it. I was allowed to go to Daddy Cool to buy stuff. And uh, the guy there would say, well, we just got this new um, Augustus Pablo in. And he'd say, uh, you know, I'd say, oh, great. How many you got just in from Jamaica? He'd say, 100. I, I said, I'll take the lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I would. And um It'd be like you just couldn't do that now. I mean, shortly after you couldn't do, but you know, nobody, nobody bad in eyelid. It was great. It was lovely. Um, yeah, and the fact, I can't. The fact that it was all handwritten order lists, and you know, nothing was computerized, yeah. and everything was just uh, like on bits of no. paper. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for 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 you, Jim, you were working um, Oxford Walk, and you would have been what pretty much opposite HMV or next to HMV, like very close. Am I right? Uh, no, HMV was um, between um, Regent Street and Bond Street, wasn't it? Right. Of yeah. course, I know Oxford Walk was Oxford yeah, Walk is further was between, up. Was between um, Oxford Circus and Tottenham Court Road. But then we we I was there before the megastore opened up and the megastore opened up a little bit after I got there. Um, but I, I when I got there, um, Trevor Reedy was working the singles counter and he became a very close friend and I miss him terribly and I can't get in touch with him. But uh, I don't know why. But um, he he was the singles buyer and I was the cassette buyer and then he became the album buyer and I became the seven and 12 inch buyer. And I would order just like the most obscure stuff, everything, you know, just, you know, every German import that came out. And, um, and you, we were in a situation where you could push things, you know, so if you decided, if you, you know, um, 
like when O Superman came out, you know, we were all really into that. And, you know, we sold tons and tons of copies of it just on import before it was released. And I remember when like Swiss Energy was Captain Kirk was hovering on the outside of the top 50 and we were really trying to push it in and stuff. But we sold hundreds of those those things. And sometimes people would ask for recommendations. And so they would be getting like obscure seven inches on zigzag and um and peel would come in sometimes and he would be buying up obscure stuff steve-o from some bazaar used to um he used to deliver records for phonogram and he would come and he was a he was the futurist dj and he would buy obscure stuff as well so um and we had a, a wall where we would just cover the entire wall with seven inch picture discs and pe- uh, seven inch um sleeves and people would come in and like stare at the wall and get intrigued by something say what's that what's that and we would play stuff and you know even during the lunch hour rush hour i would be playing the most obscure noisy things um and selling them too you know um it was great we had total freedom about what we stuck and the singles department was doing great yeah you've you've actually brought it back to me and thanks for the recollection i can place everything now the um so the reason that i wanted to mention hmv is is it's important to mention because that might have been considered the the other sort of national store shop that wasn't you know wh smiths or woolworths but i could never get jamming into hmv i would go into hmv with every issue and say you know can i speak to somebody about taking the fanzine they just say we don't take fanzines yeah you have to go to the head office then i'd walk down the road or catch the bus you probably just jump on the bus on my school pass come into one of your shops and and you'd be like here you go here's cash and so that difference was was monumental because on one it also meant that for kids and for those who were interested if we wanted to get something that we kind of felt like we had a good chance of of, of buying it of it being able to find it and being able to find something semi-obscure and fun you know like what else is on the wall what fanzine will be in stock right now the virgin shops were the place to go because you weren't discriminating against the latest emi record which to be fair and i loved rough trade to bits i mean i genuinely genuinely did but i'm not sure that they ever made a point of selling records from major labels so you could go into a virgin shop and you could buy whatever the the latest major label new wave you know signing was but you could also pick up a fancy or like you say jim look at the wall and just be like what is that record and you would probably somebody would play it for you you might walk out with it and so that was the real difference between those shops and it's why i think you were very very important in terms of what you did and that and that great thing of being like Jim said, to being able to introduce people to to new stuff, just recommending stuff all the time and having that sort of time to just play records to people that were coming in the stores. I mean, you go into a record shop now and, you know, unless it's like a little indie, if, if I went to HMV, there'd be no records for me. You know, nobody would be saying to me, hey, have you heard this? Do you want to hear this new single? It just doesn't happen, you know. And... Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I worked at Notting Hill Gate, it was fantastic because we used to get a lot of um, uh, 12-inch imports, you know, the reggae the reggae Jamaican imports. And Simonon would come in. Paul Simonon lived in Labbert Grove, and he would come in and he'd just like, what's new, what's new? And I'd just get all the dub plates out for him and play all these tracks, and he'd just buy the whole lot, you know. And, yeah, being able to recommend stuff. I mean, Costello was one of my regular customers at Notting Hill Gate. I was always playing him new stuff that was coming in or some old re-releases or whatever, you know. But, um, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So I mean, I think that's what the DJ thing for me is, is, you know, being able to turn people on to music. That's the thing. 
I think that's hopefully why people should work at record shops. I mean, a obviously we all want to, yeah, we we all need to to, to eat, so you got to work somewhere. Yeah. But hopefully, the attraction of working at a record shop is you get to be that conduit between whoever is making. Um, I'm going to call it the art, the you know the creative, the creative product with the emphasis on creative, and and the consumer at the other end. You can be the person who who can who can be exactly. you know don't try that, try this. Yeah, exactly. But when I have a look along here again, because I mean these, these these notebooks are hilarious, especially the fact that I've kept them, but we use them in the book as well. And I'm I am seeing that when when I got up to jamming seven, which is really only the third properly printed issue, but it's the first one Better Badges did. And I have a feeling I must have been able to just uh, keep coming and going from Better Badges with stock because on the first day I took it around, um, Virgin Marble Arts took 75 copies from me, which was enormous. And you paid me up front. So that must have been you probably, Brian. <laughs> uh, yeah, it must have been. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I was getting uh, to really know how uh, how many I could sell of things. So uh, I was getting quite reckless because I knew I could shift stuff. So it was all really good. I went to Virgin Oxford Walk a few days later, sold 10 copies, but I saw somewhere, I was just flicking through as we started this call that somebody just took an enormous amount or they paid me 23 pence out of the 25, which is like pretty much like saying we will take the hit because by the time you'd had a couple stolen or damaged or just lost. That's, oh yeah, here we go. This would be you, Jim. Thank you for this. Um, September, 1979, <laughs> you took 25 and you gave me 23 pence out of 25p. Thank, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, don't tell Richard Branson. <laughs> did, you, did you come further west, um, Tony? Did you come further west to like Shepherd's Bush or were there any shops in the, in the west? Yeah, there were uh, rough trade for certain. The fifth column stall under the Westway would sell it at weekends. I'm trying to think the Honest John's would, if it was there at the time, would probably be selling it. So I would come west. I'd actually, maybe, maybe that's why. I, I didn't call shops up because the, the terrifying thing would be to spend like an hour and a half on that extra Fulham. underground journey to get there and find out maybe somebody wasn't there that knew about jamming and would you know say, can you come back tomorrow? For me, it was the only way to get around and sell copies of fanzines. It's the old fashioned, you know, selling the records out the boot of your car. And I'm so grateful that all of you were were able um, to to have those kind of freedoms. And I know you were each talking a little bit about some of the other people who came in. Well, maybe maybe you can take a chance to talk about any of the other fanzines that you remember from the day that either sold or didn't sell or the characters that would come in and whether you occasionally had to turn somebody still down. i all mine, Tony. Do you really? I still, have, I still have all mine on those shelves in that side of the room. Yeah, yeah. I, I provided loads of them for um, Eddie Pillar's punk zine book that came out last year. They came here and scanned all my fanzines. Hmm. Um, so yeah, sort of major contributor to uh, to that book. I wish we could see it here. Actually, um, how, how how what are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands. Oh, not thousands. No, no. A um, hundred maybe. Yeah. Uh, ripped and torn. Um, Alan Anger's one. Um, was it called um, Wired? Something Wired. Live Wire. They're all up there. My, my memory is shot. Too many years of drinking. I'm glad <laughs> I don't drink anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, I could dig them out. But I, yeah. Well, a, that's great you held on to them because unfortunately my fanzine collection disappeared when I moved to the States. I, I was trying to get it into safe hands and it, it just couldn't happen. They ended up getting dumped and it was a real 
shame knowing how valuable some of them are now. Yeah. Um, Jim and Brian, what do you remember about other particular fanzines that you found you know, potentially inspiring at the time or would sell well for you? Uh, I particularly liked, um, I think it was called Strictly Confidential. Oh, the, yeah. um, the, the guys from uh, St. Albans Art School used to come down and... Uh, they uh, they had a group called the Tea Set. A lot of them were in the Tea Set, and they uh, were just such a laugh. Was good mates, and uh, I was always struck. I think because I'd come from uh, Cardiff and felt very much the, the the country hick up in town, to suddenly meet all these ultra confident, uh, or what seemed to me to be ultra confident uh, home counties people. Uh, who actually knew people in bands, which I never did. Uh, it was quite, a, and they were just really nice and very friendly. And they they went on. I mean, Callie Callerman uh, now looks after Nick Drake's estate. He was in that. Nick Egan, who did a lot of work with Malcolm McLaren, was uh, big in it. And um, Pete Barrett used to hang around, uh, be part of it. He did most of the Dexies and a lot of the Clash covers. Uh, so those guys particularly impressed me because suddenly you'd be sort of confronted by a, a gang of really friendly cartoon characters. Um, I particularly remember them. And I remember Chris Nees coming in and bringing Danny Baker in and saying, oh, this is the new editor of... Sniffing Ed- Glue? Sorry? Or Zigzag? No, Sniffing Glue. Yeah, it was, uh, he was uh, working there with Sniffing Glue. And, of course... Um, Mark Perry instantly folded sniffing glue. He handed it to Danny and then folded it, which was uh, it, it, quite amusing for Mark, I think. But yeah, I remember them coming in quite clearly. And the rest of the time on a Sunday, well, I remember seeing John Peel in the back for the first time and that being an absolute breathtaker, you know, being a kid and not being able to talk to him because everybody else talked to him about football. <laughs> and uh, I, coming from Wales and an Irish family, I knew nothing about football. And then after a while, I suddenly thought, and he, he, he talks about his family. So I just one day I said, how's William? And that was like opened the floodgates. And uh, after that, um, I had many good chats with John Peel. Uh, who else used to come in? Um, well, on a Sunday, because it was the only shop open for it was the days when Sundays were quiet and we were open 12 till 7, I think. And a lot of people uh, in bands would stay at um, the hotels nearby. So you'd quite often get people like Meatloaf coming in and um, David Johansson. And uh, we'd kind of not deliberately, it just okay. wouldn't occur to us to go and talk to them. We didn't have that sort of outgoingness. So they... They would come in. They probably thought we were blanking them. We were actually much too shy to talk to them. The worst one was, um, what's his name, out of uh, Cheap Trick. Came in in, in his yeah, full gear, the full the hat, the bow tie and everything. And he came up and he said, is this in? And I sort of just said no. And it didn't even occur to me to say, uh, oh, I really like Cheap Trick a lot, you know, and... Um, he probably would have really liked that, but I just sort of ignored him by mistake. I was like, oh, these, these people, yeah, you realise they were just being friendly and would have loved it if you said something about them. And they would always eventually be unable to stop themselves going to see if we had their records in stock. They'd sort of wander around for a bit and then get closer and closer and the LP buyer used to be hugely amused, but highly amused by it. They'd eventually, they'd 
have a look through because all the stock was out there and I'd be like, gotcha. <laughs> you know, but, when you, when you, sorry, I was just going to say, Brian, when you did your own fanzine, i.e. when I did my own fanzine, I was, would have been much more blatant than that because I was the person selling it. It wasn't going to get bought off of aforementioned EMI. It's like walk in, okay, you mm. still, you know, oh, you've only got three copies of jamming left. I've got some in my bag. <laughs> Are you, you ready to take some more? I was always really, really blatant about that. Um, over at um, Oxford Walk and the other places you were, you were working, Jim, who was, what were some of the other fanzines and characters that would, that, that would come in there that you recall? I, to be honest, I don't remember um, which other fanzines we stocked, but there was a lot of them. Uh, well, there was, there was, I wouldn't say a lot. There was probably at any one time, there, was, there may have been five or six titles. Um, that we had, it depended on, you know, and sometimes they'd get all dog-eared and they'd disappear. And, but, you know, I, and I had a big collection of fanzines too, which unfortunately disappeared when I moved to New York, along with my seven inch collection, which I was really distraught about. And there's a few, I left them in a friend's place and they, and I didn't follow up for 10 years and uh, really disappointing, but, um, but yeah, we used to have people come into the store um I remember one time David Coverdale came in and um, and there was a new a white a new white snake single had just come out and so we put it on really loud and he was right by the speakers and then watched him when it came on <laughs> jump um, but we didn't talk to him um, but you know, Joe Jackson used to come in and and he he sort of became friendly with one of the guys that worked there after I left and I think you know they maybe sold him a guitar or something like that. I met um, Steve Stapleton from Nurse with Wound from working at the store because um, he he worked at a sign making place half a block across Oxford Oxford Street, and so he came in one day and we had the first Nurse with Wound album, and he said to me, "What's the you know?" Came up with the album, and said, "What's this album like?" And I had listened to it, and so I described it, and he was sort of impressed that I'd listened to it, and then that became you know we became friendly, and then I was starting to make music and. And then that turned into a collaboration. And then he opened my eyes to uh, my ears to an incredible array of music that I'd never heard. I mean, he's just he's kind of changed my life and also to the most you know, ear opening ways of creating music, not using instruments, not using any ability, just going in and manipulating sounds and whatever just came into your imagination. And he was so that was kind of a life changing thing. And through him, I met, you know, he brought in William Bennett and from White House and, and um, you know, we used to go out to the pub for lunch at lunchtime and stuff. And then I started recording with, with Nurse with Wound. We'd go to this studio in Shepherd's Bush every Friday night. But also um, Trevor, the other guy at the singles counter, used to go to, um, to these clubs like um, Billy's and club for heroes and stuff and so he became friends with um boy george and jeremy from hazy fantasy and marilyn and people like that and they would come down in the store because they they lived not far from there up uh, by um you know the top of tottenham court road up by the scala and stuff and um they would come in in the middle of the day in full makeup fully um club kitted out and then they were delightful and really nice and when i put out the first fetus single i gave a copy to george and he was djing somewhere i can't remember where and he came in one day and said oh yes i i love playing your single it clears the place out i played the last <laughs> <laughs> i used so, to come into the uh, mega store after the blitz club 
they'd come in on a Sunday morning when we were doing stock checks. And, um, you know, we used to do the stock checks on a Sunday because we were closed for the, to the public. And they used to come in in all their regalia straight from the club at sort of, you know, five in the morning, six in the morning or whatever into the megastore. They're absolutely useless at counting. We always, <laughs> we'd, always, we'd always have to recount everything they ever counted. But it was fun to have them on board in the store. Yeah. Oh, that sounds, that sounds wonderful. Jim, talking about when you were putting out the fetus record, so I knew that there was an ad on the back of one of these jammings. And uh, quite magically, it's the very first monthly issue, and you've got you two on the front of jamming. And on the back, we have a full-page ad for scraping fetus off the wheel, <laughs> which I guess is, the, to some extent, the Twin Peaks and, and you know, the, the, the polar <laughs> opposites of, of jamming's potential appeal i mean I, you know it might have been nicer for you if it was the other way around you had the front cover but i have converged with you two on occasion yeah it i i it was really neat there was some back cover ads that i've looked at that i was I, really embarrassed that we had um you know it was frustrating because i would sooner have not taken ads but i realized very quickly that's how how it worked um i was actually looking at this again and thinking four or five years ahead of nine inch nails that's my yeah. I'm just taking it. Just it just really kind of like struck me, mm. and 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 I you know I never get the nine inch nails connection. But um, thank you. I think he. Uh, I think Trent. Trent um, is definitely like my early work. That's one word. Okay, and you know I I feel like Virgin those Virgin shops were almost the, or maybe the other way to the better way to say it's jamming was almost like a. Um, uh, sort of a parallel to the Virgin shops in that we were mainstream, but indie, you know, we were, we were the fanzine that was also getting to the news agents and you were working in the, in, in the shops that were doing the same thing. So when you say, for example, Jim, you'd only have five or six fanzines. Yeah. I'm sure they were, you know, they still played an important role. And for the five or six that could get into those shops, you played an important role for us because the fanzine culture, let's just talk about that for a moment. And then I want to move on to how your own lives were shaped by this in your own musical uh, careers. But just to, to talk from your perspective, the role that fanzines would have played in, in the culture at the time, because they certainly did. They, they were vital in Swansea. Uh, most bands didn't come to Swansea. They got as far as Cardiff or possibly Newport. And so getting fanzines from London, along with obviously the enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds, um, it was our Bible, wasn't it? You know, getting any any information about bands and new records and stuff was vital because we couldn't just click on the computer like you can now. And and I think when you're 17, 16, 17, 18, the, the voice of your peers, you know, fanzines are written by our peers. So we were going to take a lot more notice of them than, say, maybe, you know, some old journalist on, on sounds that hated punk rock, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, Tom Moon used to do Strangled fanzine. I was a big Stranglers fan in 1976, 77. And the Strangled fanzine was fantastic for me, you know, interviews with, with the Stranglers. And, yeah, I just think they were vital in helping us sort of realize that we could do things ourselves it wasn't just all about you know books that were published by official publishers it was doing itself we did a fanzine in the swansea virgin shop we only did one edition but it was fun doing it wonderful um, wonderful were there any fanzines at all when you left australia um down in melbourne at the time well 
you know, it depends on where you draw the line on what a fanzine is, because, you know, there, there were alternative publications like in the 60s. And uh, there, there was one and I can't remember the name of it, but it was more of a, a kind of an Oz type of like like the Oz publication in, in England. It was a bit more like that, um, where it was counterculture that also covered politics and music and stuff. So there was um, there was a magazine like that. And but I don't remember um any i mean they may have been fanzines but i don't remember them um but i i i kind of grew up with enemy and melody maker and also from the states like rock scene and things like that you know um from america as well wasn't there the punk punk yeah there was punk magazine and also then around 77 like slash and no no mag and you know, and I devoured all of those. And the Slash, Slash, we didn't sell things like Slash, but I used to buy them at Rough Trade just for myself. And uh, and it was like a window into that world, you know, um, uh, that you couldn't. And that was, for me, being in Australia, the rock scene magazine was like, was amazing in like 75, 76, because then, you know, I'd hear about television and the Voidoids and stuff, and they'd be my favorite band, and I hadn't heard a note of them, you know. And uh, and then when I was in London, then I was sort of interested in Slash because that was like the most exotic thing, you know, like California, you know, this scene going on in California. So, yeah. And I think that there's still like a, you know, a lot of it's migrated to online now. But I think, you know, there is a there's a real role of um, of those sort of publications being a gatekeeper of of. Um, of the culture you know and and especially now it's really hard to there's great music out there there's amazing music out there but it's hard to to find in a lot of ways just because of the there's so much noise um and so to have websites well which are like publications like the quietest and um it's really important to um to have those kind of conduits yeah definitely and uh, I'm, I'm sure for you, similarly, Brian, you were, you were in that hot seat uh, for part of the time, you know, being able to buy them in? Yeah, it was very much uh, the, the thing I liked about it was the enthusiasm of the people coming in. And, and, I, and I guess in a way it was, um, thinking about it, it was more influential on me than maybe some of the uh, famous totally independent seven-inch singles because... I was quite apart from them, whereas here with the fan scenes, the, the people who were actually making them were bringing them in and being totally enthusiastic. It was and um, very, very friendly, really nice people. And so, yeah, that, that you're talking about the influence for the future. I suppose it was the first time. I mean, you'd pick up like the Desperate Bicycle single and that would have the information on it and scritty and whatever but the the fan scenes were the ones that i suppose was the first time i really started thinking there's a, a democracy here going on I, without wishing to sound too pretentious but you know it was a really vital part of it and seeing that the audience themselves could be a part of it you know that the, the, it was a scene and they were out there and enjoying it and that was a really visible aspect of it and it was quite inspiring in its own way Oh yeah, yeah. Virgin Swansea was the what hub of the Swansea punks. The kids would come out of their school uniforms, go upstairs to my office, and change into their sort of you know ripped 
t-shirt and tie with pins in and you know they'd be like 13 14 and and I still know most of them and they say that that coming that was their saving their rest you know their safe place that they used to come to to avoid getting beaten up and things like that after school so yeah it very much was very much part it was like a youth club almost you know yeah record shops could could provide that We've all we have managed to stay in touch. I didn't. You, you, uh, Wendy and Brian have stayed in touch with each other. I didn't really feel I knew Brian quite so well until we kind of got back around to doing this book. I've been able to stay in touch with Jim and with Wendy. Uh, right up top, of course, you mentioned the Book Hill Foot Tappers, and this was the um, the spread we did at a point we were trying to figure out how to be a pop yeah. magazine, as well as how to be a. Um, you know, we were growing out of being this fanzine. And it's like, well, how do we feature stuff that we like in a different way without just another question and answer interview? So I, I did that feature on you, Wendy. Um, foot, foot tapping. So it's, it was, it's very smash hits, but I guess we're at least trying to cover the right music. You had a, 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 a nice little career there for a short time, I guess. You said it's a very three, short right? time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very short time. In fact, it was um, because of the Boot Hill Foot Tabbers, I was given an ultimatum at the Virgin Megastore that I had to make my priorities the Megastore or the band. So I chose the band. And then within about six months, the band had disbanded and I was out of a job. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds that sounds like the way it would go, except that you then started the locomotion, which used to be, was it the Kentish Town? What was it, the Forum? Town, town and Country Club, town yeah, it's now it's the Forum. It was the Forum, an okay. Irish ball, and then it became the Town and Country Club. Yeah. And it was like London's most favourite venue for bands coming over from America and wherever. You know, they loved playing there. It really was a, a, a beautiful venue, lovely atmosphere, great crowd, great people running it. Yeah, so I had a good a good few years DJing every Friday night there. It was and one was of the it, yeah. It was you? one. Of, it's, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, and then please carry on. It was one of the few times I would as uh, sacrifice myself for late late night buses because I lived on totally the opposite side of London. And yeah. after after jamming packed in, I had a sort of a youth to read to live because I I worked so damn hard for so long and yeah. I had a group of friends that loved going there and I was like I can finally just go out and enjoy myself and not have to worry about getting to yeah. the printers I, I, had to... Well, I, I was so chuffed a few years not that long well probably 10 years ago that I discovered that Nick Hornby used to come and stand up in the balcony watching everyone dancing and yeah and that high fidelity was based on the locomotion difference yeah. between him and me i've got to say is i was on the dance floor dancing i know me too yeah <laughs> and I'll never, I'll never forget phil jupiter's when he was dancing to barefooting he took his shoes off and at the end of the night he had to get the night bus back to wherever he was living in the east end with one shoe because somebody had kicked his shoe away <laughs> well i i also remember you're saying at the time you wanted to be do, carry on doing the locomotion into your 50s and lo and behold you succeeded I'm into my sixties now, Tony. Well, well into my sixties. Yeah. So you exceeded. I did. Exceeded expectations, Jim. You and I got to um, hang out all over again on a probably uh, a, a completely different level in in New York. You, yeah. why was it you made the move? I'm just interested. You talked about how some of the people who came into Virginia helped helped get you. You know, there, there were these musical partnerships starting to be created. But why the move to New York? They closed down the warehouse at Virgin uh, in the middle of 82. And then that's that was when I had to, you know, I made a choice of whether I was going to start doing music professionally or get another job. And I decided to do music professionally. But by then, 
I had I while I was working for Virgin, I'd already released like three seven inches, a twelve inch single, and two albums under the name Fetus. Um, while I had that that full time job, and and so then I just concentrated on doing music, and then um, got involved with you know other people I was collaborating with, and got involved with some bizarre records, and um, and we came to, I came to New York to do a show, which was a project called Immaculate Consumptive, which was myself, Nick Cave, Mark Almond, and Lydia Lunch. And I was involved with Lydia romantically at the time. And I came to New York and just loved it. It was the opposite of London. It was, you know, it's a 24 hour city. Um, it was, whether it was walkable, you know, it was um, geographically, you know, tight. And, um, and so I, I stayed for a few months and then thought I'm just moving here. And then that's, that's kind of how it happened. You know, I was going back and forth to London a little bit for recording projects, but I was just, I was here. And then I met, I re-met you at the limelight, I believe. I definitely put on one of your gigs at the limelight in the nineties, in the early nineties, for, for sure. Yeah. I, I traveled to New York uh, for very, very similar reasons, to be honest. I had gotten frustrated with England, with London. And I found like, I'm talking about that night bus, Wendy, it really was a hassle. And I didn't have that hassle in New York. I could walk home. And there would be a cab for no money and there would be so many people on the streets that I felt reasonably safe doing that. So uh, so you and I made the same journey for different reasons. I had so much fun in New York for about five five years or so. I probably had the best time and and carried on being really, really creative, having a wonderful time there. So I'm really glad we we became acquaintances in New York as well. And then, as you say, you ran down... Um, just you know, some of your noms of plumes for working. It's an incredible catalog of 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 music you've built up over the years. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's really impressive. I've also got to say for those, um, I'm I'm I may take a still picture and you know of this along the way and share it out. But Wendy has a back, like behind her is a wall of vinyl, and behind you, Jim, is a wall of CDs, which might speak to the pain of losing your seven inch collection. Which at least I <laughs> sold mine when I moved to the mm. states. Yeah. But uh, yeah, both music, music everywhere. And um, Brian, there's no shortage of music in your life because you're busy uh, putting it out. And we can see yeah, some of it yeah. behind you. Yeah, sort of, uh, let's put my on. Yeah, they're, um, that's the warehouse. <laughs> that's the <bad. laughs> Yeah, my bed. Uh, not that my wife is wildly happy about it. Yeah, yeah, still very exciting times for me. Uh, well, just, just. Just speak for a moment to what it's like to put out music at a time when people aren't buying music, because hopefully somebody like Jim can still find a way to earn from music. But how do you earn by putting out sort of, quote, records? Well, um, I lose on most of them. Um, I do uh, some work and I, I've got uh, uh, retired from work in local government and got a pension. I, I just. Uh, I'm in the lucky position where um, I spend my pocket money on it, basically. And <laughs> because it's friends and we've all mostly all been through it already, uh, everybody knows it's not going to, you know, maybe we'll have an accident. I always say, God forbid, we don't have anything that's a success. But um, it's <laughs> it's the old uh, labour of love thing, you know, that we... Uh, you know, it's just kind of um, I hit a point where I, I suddenly thought I'm at this age and 
I've got enough energy left to do have one more go at things. So I'll do it totally on my terms and with friends and we'll just put out really, really nice things. And so, um, yeah, it's not, it's, I mean, I don't keep copyrights. The whole idea about Dimple Disc is not to, not to have any value at all as an entity. Yeah, everybody keeps their own stuff. I, I just get the stuff out there and it's just fun. It's just nice. I mean, it's sort of, um, as it is nice bumping into you again all these years, it's a new, different world, you know, but I guess reflecting back to uh, times that were and try and learn from them, but just really, as back when I was a kid, just sort of uh, as long as I had enough money in my pocket for a few beers and uh, the rent, I didn't really care. And now I've reached the other end of things and I still don't really care. You know, <laughs> I go down to I see Wendy down in St. Leonard's when I go down with Terry Edwards, the near jazz experience and do the merch for Terry whenever I can, because it's it's fun. You know, it's um, it's still a great, great thing to do. And. I don't mind, you know, taking all that I've learned and trying to give friends a sort of platform. Yeah. Well, that's a nice connection. And maybe maybe uh, uh, last time I saw Wendy was when Near Jazz Experience played at uh, Music's Not Dead's record store day, what would have been two oh, yeah. years ago. And I went and I went along once I heard that it was Mark, Mark Bedford's band and, and Bedford's has taken part in one of these podcasts as well. So that's really nice. Little oh, thing. is he? Yeah. Right. Little yeah, connection yeah. all around. I think what we've all got in common, and uh, you know, and have maintained, we've all maintained the love for the music and the desire to carry on yeah, some passion. form of creativity. Um, and I'm sure that that there are plenty of other people who were shaped by different times and different days who are no less creative themselves mm -hmm. out of different scenes. But for us, that kind of interaction with the record shops, the importance of the record shops in our lives, is is something that Best we job I that ever we had. had. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. I think it's not that. I mean, I, I think that there still is community around record shops. Um, Absolutely, in, yeah. In New York. Mm. It's the same here in Hastings. It's a really good community of vinyl buyers, record shops, little underground, you know, one guy selling loads of records. You know, it's there's a lot going on here too. Yeah. And I think that in different cities, uh, you know, there's, you know, the they tend to be like a centerpiece of, of the community. And, you know, I just did a, a road trip around the Midwest and down South. And, and I, you know, I know that, you know, we, we spent a couple of days in Louisville and this, you know, that's, uh, you know, there's a couple of hubs there, you know, and it's, um, it's a really important community thing and just dis dissemination of information. And, there's no doubt about it. And I'm fortunate. I've got no. I've actually got two record shops on my local street, and they uh, both seem to, you know, thrive. And they yeah. do carry on. There's still places that I just stop in and see what's coming. And one of the owners I know really well and go for a drink with. And I, I, no, I mean, absolutely, record shops are, are, are so great that they've maintained their importance. Um, yeah, vinyl sales have outstripped out outstripped um, CD sales now, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, it's 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 a good thing. And, you know, it, in another scenario, I'm sure we could just keep this going and, and, and keep this going, apart from the fact that uh, that, uh, 
you know, at some point one's got to wrap up a podcast. I've got the classic later life thing, which is uh, my kid just called me to ask why I haven't made him off the school bus yet. So, um, <laughs> you know, like parental duties call. And yeah, my cat's calling me for some food. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for all taking part. Thank you for being part of the book. Thank you Thanks more than anything. Me. For the ones of who did for buying the jammings back in the day, it made all the difference to an aspiring fanzine writer. And um, and I'm so glad that uh, we all stayed stayed creative and we all stay in touch in different ways. And you know, wonderful, wonderful speaking with you all. Thank you. Again, thank you so much to Wendy, Brian, and JG, Jim, for taking the time out for this conversation. I'm going to provide links to all three of them in the show notes. Just scroll down the app on your phone or on the webpage. I want to give a further shout out to Brian, who did not seize the opportunity to shill for the bands on Dimple Disc, so I'm going to do it for him. One of his releases is by Baby Shakes, a group I saw in Woodstock two Halloweens ago and fell head over heels for. Brian's also working on a documentary about the band Micro Disney, whose former frontman, Carl Coughlin, is another Dimple Discs artist. Jim, JG, meanwhile, just performed as JG Thurwell in New York City, while Wendy, as you heard, continues to DJ on dance floors well into her 60s. Now, if by any chance you'd like to hear more of Wendy and myself in discussion, then I'm happy to tell you that we will be appearing together at the Best of Jamming book and movie event in her current hometown of Hastings on Friday, February 25th. It's promoted by the Printed Matter Bookshop and it's hosted at the Electric Palace Cinema, where we will also be showing the movie Rough Cut and Ready Dubbed. I'd never seen this film before last month. It's an amazing street verite document of the post-punk era, particularly the tribalism that we've discussed on some of the other episodes. It's got exclusive footage from a wide variety of acts, and better yet, the filmmakers went back a quarter century later to re-interview not just the bands, but also the kids they'd met on the street. Following its screening, Wendy and I will talk about the movie, about fanzines, and about jamming, of course. This is one of three events lined up in three consecutive days in the UK in February, starting on Wednesday 23rd, when I'll be appearing as the special guest at the Rock and Roll Book Club at the Dublin Castle in London, as hosted by Tony Gleed. And it will continue on Thursday, February 24th at the Rialto Theatre in Brighton, as hosted by City Books in a conversation with the Arts Desk's Casper Gomez. Obviously, COVID continues to play havoc with our lives, but Jamming was the magazine that trailed the cover line, A New Optimism for the 80s, and I carry that positive outlook, hopefully not any positive tests, into the 2020s as well. As for the book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977 to 86, well, hopefully that's a title that uh, needs not too much further clarification, but look, It's got a bunch of reprints from all 36 issues across a wide variety of musicians and topics, not just the music. Some of the articles are reprinted full size so you can read them. Some of them are reprinted smaller size so you can just get the artwork impressions. I wrote something to accompany every single issue. Billy Bragg wrote the foreword. As you heard, Jim, Wendy and Brian all wrote something for the book, although only JG's um, copy actually made it into the book, uh, among many other musicians and former contributors, entrepreneurs, scenesters. Uh, It's 300 pages, all of them in colour. It's laid out like a giant bumper fanzine issue. Just visit TonyFletcher.net or OmnibusPress.com for ordering info. You should be able to get it some way or another, regardless of which country you live in. 
As for the podcast, well, we usually drop this every two weeks. We're going to take a three-week break for the holidays and return on January 6th with one of two more episodes already in the bag, either a conversation with the jamming contributors Paul Davies, Bruce Dessau and Ross Fortune, all of whom went on to further writing and editing jobs after getting their start with jamming, or with Brian Young from the band Rudy and Peter Jaffo Jervis from the band Zeitgeist, who along with my own band Apocalypse, were the three acts on the jamming record label that ran through 1981 and 1982. Yeah, 40 years ago now. I'll let my friend Jenny DeHart, who was featured in episode one, take us out with the credits, and we'll see you down the line. Cheers. This episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast was produced by Tony Fletcher. Greg Morton provided editing assistance and designed the logo. The Jamming Fanzine podcast theme was written, recorded, and produced by Noel Fletcher. Check the show notes for more details. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe, leave a review, a rating or share. We'll be back on the podcast stands in two weeks, bringing back that new optimism of the 80s, hopefully.